If you have your Bibles, grab them and turn with me to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Uh, Heather mentioned a moment ago that uh, today's Pentecost Sunday. Uh, She read some from Acts chapter 2. I want us to back up a little bit and read from Acts chapter 1. We're going to get to Romans 8 in just a moment. Um, But I want to start at the very beginning of Acts 1 verses 1 through 5. Luke is writing a bit of the story of the church. Acts is... Uh, One way you can kind of think about the book of Acts is the actions of the disciples or the actions of the early church. And uh, Luke gets us started in this story with these first couple of verses. Acts 1, 1 through 5 says this. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions to the Holy Spirit, the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and he spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Spirit. And if you're reading your Bible, just go down a couple verses to verse 8. Verse 8 says this. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's what happened at Pentecost. Pentecost came, just as we read a few moments ago, the Spirit fell, the power of the Holy Spirit to be his witnesses in the neighborhood and to the nations is what's happening in us now. Well, here in Scripture, just as said, the Holy Spirit came, the disciples became his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and to the ends of the earth. Two important words there. You'll receive power, you will receive power, and you will be his witnesses. The power of the Holy Spirit to be his witnesses on the earth. And then Jesus ascends. And the Holy Spirit falls, which we just read about in Acts chapter 2. We call it Pentecost. At Pentecost, God does three really important things. I want to make sure you get these three things that happens at Pentecost. The first is this. The power of God now rests on each person individually. Before Pentecost, it was, you know, if you will, just the leaders or the prophets or the disciples. The Old Testament tells the story of this relationship with God. You know, God was leading. God was, the Old Testament talks about Abraham, that God was for them. And then kind of progresses to Moses. God's with them. But what's happening at Pentecost is now God becomes personal. God is made intimate. The power of the Holy Spirit is not just with us. The power of the Holy Spirit now resides in us. Second thing that happens at Pentecost is each believer is given a new power for ministry. All of us, the power of the Holy Spirit is is given power to do ministry, to witness to people. We now have God's anointing on our lives to know him and to make him known. A lot of times around the church, people say, oh, I don't know what to say. I don't, I don't know what to talk. I don't know how to tell my neighbor about Jesus. We have all been given the power 
to be his witnesses, to share God's love with people around us. And the third thing that happens, which is super powerful, is that Pentecost signals the breaking of barriers that have separated the human race since Genesis. There's this story you might know. It's Genesis chapter 11, where these guys are trying to build this tower up to heaven. And at that time, God uh, separates the people by giving them all different languages. Now what God's doing is unifying people, all mankind, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that happens at Pentecost. Ultimately, what happens, the most amazing thing, is the formation of a new humanity in Christ. We call that humanity the church. And you get to be a part of that. And I get to be a part of that. Now, if you have your Bibles, flip over to Romans chapter 8. Just keep your finger there at Acts. We're going to come back to Acts in just a moment. But if you have your Bibles, flip over to Romans chapter 8. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you know we've been working through Romans 8. We've read it a couple of times. Uh, We've read it once all the way through, and we've read these verses a couple of times. We're just going to read a couple of verses at a time to get to the end of the chapter. Uh, Trust that each of these verses will speak to you as we move through them. The primary purpose of the Spirit's work in our lives is to move us from a transactional relationship with God to a transcendent reality of Christ in us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. That's what happens at Pentecost, this supernatural power, this supernatural love is given to the church, is given to you and me. So Romans chapter 8, 31 and 32 says this, what then shall we say in response to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? So Let's just stop and answer this question real quick. We don't, we'll just stop here for a second. We don't, we don't need to go any further. Uh, what do you say in response to all this? All that we've read today, all that we've read already, and all that, what do you say in response to all that we've read, to all that you know, to, to all that you love? What do you say in response to all of this? What do you say in response to the fact that God is for you? Do you guys know that God is for you? I mean, if, we, if you don't know God is for you, we can't get going very far after that. Like, if you don't really believe that God is for you, the next couple of sentences are just gonna really be a struggle. God is for you. This is such an incredible truth. And he proves that he's for you by giving us his greatest gift, by giving us his son. That's how much he's for you, that he gave away for you to be known by him and to know him. What do you say to the fact that, what is your response to the fact that God is for you? Yeehaw, that sounds good to me. I mean, that's not the most spiritual thing that I would have come up with, but heck yeah, yeehaw. What do you say to the fact that God is for you? How about somebody else? Hallelujah. Somebody over here said something? Is that you, Sonny? Is it Braden? Somebody back here? Nobody? Okay, now no one's going to say anything. <laughs> now, 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 now we're calling people out. No one's looking at me anymore, I noticed. Now, what do you say in response to all of this? Oh my gosh, this is crazy. We just sang, uh, how great thou art. How great thou art. How great you are, God. How magnificent you are that you would love us. That you would make a way for me to know you. Me to know you. Yes, 
Yes, God is for you. I think God's goal is for his love to rule and reign in this world, in the midst of our pain and heartbreak, in the midst of the beauty and joy. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's what this says. The psalmist writes these words. If God is for us, who can be against us? The psalmist writes, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? If God is for us, who can be against us? What do I need to fear? Last week, Christy and I were with some really good friends, lifelong friends. Uh, We were at this crazy wedding and we were having this really cool, intimate conversation. And the question popped up, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? And we're having this conversation and it sounds like a really simple question, right? Like, what are you afraid of? And the more I started thinking about my answer, the more fearful I became. I don't know if that would be true for anybody else, but I started to think, oh my gosh, what am I? And then I started thinking all of these things. What are you afraid of? Being a burden? Being found out, maybe? Failure, rejection? I remember writing in my journal once, I was afraid of freedom. Religion is a whole lot easier. What then shall we say in response to this in the midst of all of our fears? If God is for us, who can be against us? Check out verse 33 and 34. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. It's amazing. Jesus is interceding for you and me. Jesus is interceding for those who have been accused. Anyone here ever, anyone here ever been accused? Um, maybe even formal charges brought up against you? Or maybe just informal, maybe just accused, like accusations from a family member. Maybe across the kitchen table, you know, or maybe through email. Been accused, criticized, maybe a text message from a coworker. I have a friend who keeps a file, pastor friend of mine, who keeps a file in his drawer of letters that include accusations that he's heard over the years. And I'm thinking, what are you doing? Why would you keep those things? And he says, Every once in a while, I pull them out and I say, God, thank you for delivering me here. God, thank you for your faithfulness here. God, thank you for loving me in the midst of accusations. Not an easy thing to do, especially with those accusations that come from the accuser, those ones that just whisper in your head. Those are probably the most challenging ones, right? Not the emails are hard, but those emails that you get maybe or that text message or that comment from that family member might just provoke something and the accuser says, think about it, think about it, think about it, think about it. That's, in the, that's, that's, where, that's where we have to whisper back to the accuser, it's God who justifies. That's where we have to say back to the accuser, it's God who sanctifies, it's God who's at work in me, accuser. And I am his greatest delight. Verse 35 and 36. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Trouble separate us or hardship or persecution? Famine? Will that separate us? Nakedness? Being totally exposed? Would that separate us? 
or danger or sword. In verse 36, as it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. I want to talk about this for just a moment. The church that was formed in Jerusalem on Pentecost Sunday was the most amazing church. We just read a little bit about it. In fact, if you have your Bibles and want to go back to Acts 2, go back to Acts 2. Um, We didn't read these verses a moment ago, but verses 42 down through verses 46, or excuse me, verse 47. Listen to the way that this church is described, the most amazing church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles and all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This Holy Spirit-infilled church, this new humanity of Christ, the most dominant characteristic of this church was the supernatural love of the Spirit that was at work in them and that was at work through them. If you have your Bibles, just flip over one page from there to Acts chapter 4. There's just one more description that I want you to hear about this church. Acts 4 verses 32 through 35 says this, all the believers in that first church, all the believers were in one heart and mind. And no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. And with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. The way this first church loved each other and the way they loved the people around them, not only did they change this little part of the world, they changed the world. This one church changed the world. I was thinking about how our church is changing the world. I think you probably know some of this, but one of our high school students just left for a mission trip for the whole summer to India. Uh, There were a few of our high school kids and a couple other folks from our church left this morning for Guatemala for the week to minister to Guatemalan orphans. On Tuesday night, you heard Heather mention we're hosting this dinner a night for Cusco to talk a little bit about what our partners in Peru are doing. I caught Heather in the parking lot the other day as she was putting a bunch of sandwiches uh, made by folks here putting them in her car to take down to Delk Road to a ministry called The Table where they serve 300 meals a day down on Delk Road to people who are homeless or outcast or trafficked or abused. We call them, Jesus would call them the least of these. And folks in our church are making these sandwiches to make sure people are eating. Around this building this week, there are studies and conversations and people sharing tears and celebrations. 
people here were arranging play dates and taking meals to the sick. Moms and dads were praying with their kids and for their kids before bedtime. Scripture was being read at kitchen tables before the sunrise. Laughter was shared over a mid-afternoon cup of coffee or a Diet Coke. I'm not sure if this is how the first church changed the world, but I think it might be. But it wouldn't be long for that first church, wouldn't be long for that first church to be broken up. Persecution would come to that church. Paul knows that, and so do the people around him. Persecution would come to the church. However, that persecution would then spread that church out, and that church then would take the good news to the ends of the earth. Suffering would come to the church. Quick question, what then shall we say in response to suffering? What then shall we say in response to accusation? What then shall we say in response to hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Suffering has come to the church at Rome and Paul's writing about it. He's making sure that they know, hey, they're not alone. In fact, Paul quotes, this is verse 36 in Romans chapter 8, verse 36. If you're looking at your Bibles, you can probably see a quotation there. Paul's quoting Psalm 44. Psalm 44, 22 says, Yet for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Psalm 44, a uh, long psalm, it is really rough to read. It is a lament. The psalmist is crying out, This is not okay. This is not okay, God. This is not okay. And this verse Verse 22 kind of sits there towards the end of the psalm. It says sort of representatively, we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. We face death all day long. And Paul's quoting this as he writes to the Romans in the midst of their suffering. And he says to them, what are you going to say in response to suffering? Paul knows a little bit about suffering. In fact, he shares a little bit about his own journey with suffering. If you have your Bibles, you can turn over with me. I'll just read this passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 21 through 28. Paul's writing about his own suffering. And at the beginning, he's sort of setting it up. And then he says, whatever anyone else dares to boast about. And then he says, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast about. And then he says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? And then he says, I'm out of my mind to talk like this. <laughs> he says, I am more. And then he's going to tell his story. He's sort of saying, I'm just like everybody else. And then he tells his story. He says this, I have worked much harder. I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely and I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and day in the open sea. I've constantly, I've been on, I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, 
in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. And I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked, he says. And then he adds this line. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Paul knows a little bit about suffering. He knows about physical suffering. He knows about emotional suffering. And he knows about soul suffering. You catch that last line? Everything else was was pretty physical that he's referencing here, the way he's suffering. Besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of concern for the church. I, I think you know this, but I just want to say it real quick. There's not a staff member at this church that is not concerned for the church. Not an elder in our church that's not concerned for the church. And it's not so much that we're concerned about the finances or the building, but about people, but about you, about those who are here and about those who aren't here about those who are suffering and about those who are suffering alone. We are concerned for your spiritual well-being. And each of our leaders, not just staff, not just elders, but small group leaders, life group leaders, we are all concerned, kids ministry leaders. And we all want to move towards with compassion and care, especially in those places where life is fragile or where temptation is just roaring. But I want to thank you because I know many of you are concerned about the church. Not necessarily the building or our finances, but the people who sit next to you. Or the people who aren't sitting next to you anymore. I'm just thankful that we're a part of a church that is concerned about each other's spiritual well-being more than anything else. And I just want to say thank you for that. Besides everything else, he says. I face the daily pressures of my concern for all the churches. I just want to say this. May we always remember that Jesus is the head of the church. The church is his idea. Jesus is leading the church. Jesus is feeding the church. Jesus is caring for his church. And Jesus says the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church because Jesus is interceding for his church couple more verses in Romans chapter 8 verses 37 down through verse 39 these are the last couple verses he says nope nope and all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us what should we say in response to all of these things Paul says nope not going there we are more than conquerors through him who loved us And then he says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nope. What do we say in response to all this? Nope. Nope. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I looked up that word, conquerors in the original language the new testament was written in greek i wanted to understand what it meant to be conquerors more than conquerors i looked up that word it said that we are super conquerors i thought that was pretty i thought that was pretty legit we are super conquerors 
How about you tell the person sitting next to you, you are a super conqueror. Go ahead. You are a super conqueror. Super conqueror. Super con- what do you say in response to this truth that you are a super conqueror? Uh, in the first hour, when I asked this question, what do you say in response to the fact that you are a super conqueror? One guy in the back held up both hands and he said, yes, I'm a super conqueror. But somebody else just kind of sitting next to him went like this. Huh? What do you say in response? This is not the sermon, y'all. This is what scripture says. You are a super conqueror. What do you say in response to what scripture says? Not what I'm saying. It's got to be a little more than, I mean, yeah, I think so. So, 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 so I'm going to give you one more chance maybe to enthusiastically respond. What do you say in response to the fact that you are a super conqueror in Christ? What do you say in response to all of this? (laughs) Amen, Matt. He's given you the strength to walk. He's given you the strength to walk. For I am convinced, I guess that's the next question. How convinced are you? And where does that show up? Does it show up in the way that you relate to your spouse? And does it show up the way you relate to your kids? Does it show up in your finances how convinced you are that God is for you? Does it show up in the way that you do your work? I am convinced, he says. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. Paul lists all these questions, you know, all of these things, you know, would it be this, or suffering, and list this whole dark powers, demons, angels, death, creation. He pretty much makes the whole list. So I don't know if there's anything else you can add to this list. No force, nothing can separate us, you know. From what? From his love. Three times, you probably caught this, but three times in these verses that we've read, we hear references, Paul references the love of Christ. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 37, knowing all these things, we are super conquerors through him who loved us. And then verse 39, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God That is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing can separate you from his love, not even you. So if God's for us, who can be against us? What can be against us? God's for us. Who can be against you? What can be against you? What do you say in response to all of this? What do you say? Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word, that your word is true. Thank you for the truths in these words, that you are for us. Thank you for your spirit that animates us, that empowers us to trust you in the midst of suffering, in the midst of death, in the midst of accusation. 
Thank you, God, that you are with us here and now in the present and that you will be with us in the future. Thank you that nothing can separate us from your love. God, thank you for making your love known to us and for giving us the invitation to partner with you in making your love known to a lost and dying world. And now, God, in these moments, Spirit, I pray that you would speak to our hearts as we pause to sing and pray, pause to take communion, to remember, to remember what you did, God, on our behalf, not even sparing your own son. Would you help us to remember and then to celebrate that you're with us, that you're for us, that you live in us. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving this church. We love you. This church loves you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.